Please be advised, this episode pertains conversation around art that includes racial violence. Welcome to Talking Direction. I'm Gabriel Stelian Shanks, Artistic Director of the Drama League, and I'm here again with my friend and co-host and our Associate Artistic Director at the Drama League, Nylon. Hi, Nylon. Hey, Gabriel. Hey, everyone. Uh, and hi to all of our listeners around the world. Welcome back. We're glad to have you with us. Our guest today is Daniel Banks, PhD. And I'm going to throw in the PhD because we don't get too many PhDs around here. Uh, Daniel is one of the country's most innovative and imaginative arts leaders and directors. Daniel's worked extensively around the world, including productions at the National Theater of Uganda in Kampala, the Belarusian National Drama Theater in Minsk, the Market Theater in Johannesburg, South Africa, Playhouse Square in Cleveland, the Oval House in London, with the New York City and Washington, D.C. hip-hop theater festivals, and workshops of new projects with Bay Area Playwrights Festival, Playmakers Repertory Company, and McCarter Theater. He has served as the choreographer and or movement director for productions at Shakespeare in the Park, Theater for a New Audience, Singapore Repertory Theater, Landis Theater in Salzburg, and Aaron Davis Hall in Harlem. Daniel was Associate Artistic Director for Nambi E. Kelly's adaptation of Toni Morrison's Jazz at Baltimore Center Stage, which was directed by Kwame Kwearma. He served on the dramaturgical team for Camille Brown and Dancer's Black Girl Linguistic Play and Inc. Now, although Daniel works nationally and internationally, he makes his home in Fort Worth, Texas, where he is the co-founder and Artistic Director with Adam McKinney of DNA Works the award-winning arts and service organization dedicated to dialogue and healing through the arts. Founded in 2006, DNA Work centers global majority and LGBTQQ two-spirited PIAA plus voices to create more complex representations of identity, class, culture, and heritage in a variety of creative disciplines, including dance, theater, film, and writing. The company creates dialogue-based social justice action and community building with partner organizations in 37 states and 17 countries. Daniel is also the founder and director of the Hip Hop Theater Initiative that promotes youth self-expression and leadership in projects across the United States and in Azerbaijan, Ghana, Hungary, Israel, Mexico, and South Africa. He is on the founding board of the Hip Hop Education Center at New York University and is associate director of Theater Without Borders. Daniel sits on the cabinet of the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, a national grassroots advocacy and activism movement, as well as on the Drama League's Directors Council, I'm proud to say. Now that PhD is in performance studies from New York University. And he is also the editor of the first critical anthology of hip-hop theater plays called Say Word, Voices from Hip-Hop Theater, and the co-editor with Dr. Claire Seiler of The Welcome Table, Casting a Movement. Daniel is also the 2020 recipient of the prestigious Alan Schneider Director Award from Theater Communications Group. Whew! Please help me welcome to Talking Direction, our accomplished, dear friend, inspiration, and collaborator, Daniel Banks. How are you, Daniel? Welcome. Thank you, Gabriel. You're making me laugh over here every time you make a big deal about the PhD part. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're a first. I, uh, Nylon, you'll have to tell me, but I think he is our first doctor, Dr. Daniel Banks. I was going to say the same. I was like, you're the first. I was like, we should make a big deal. Getting a PhD is a big deal. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> but I'll, I'll I'll drop it now. But it, it's uh, in my heart. You will always be Daniel Banks, PhD. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I love it. Um, y'all, as are Gabriel funny. mentioned, y'all got jokes. <laughs> it's the, um, don't worry, it's gonna slide in throughout the rest of this. Um, <laughs> but um, as Gabriel mentioned, you've worked nationally and internationally, but but you found artistic home and community in the U.S. Southwest. And I, I just wonder what drew you to move your practice of your craft to this region and why this community and how did you, you know, get started as a director overall? Well, first of all, thank you, Gabriel, for that um, humbling <laughs> introduction. I really appreciate it. 
uh, and I will, I'll, I'll just shout out that um, my husband, Adam McKinney, is co-artistic director with me, co-artistic director with me of DNA Works. And mm-hmm. we moved to the Southwest in 2010 when he was offered a, a job in Santa Fe, New Mexico, running a dance program at a new um, arts charter school. Uh, and then while there, I became chair of performing arts at the Institute of American Indian Arts, also in Santa Fe. And then six years ago, he was offered a tenure track uh, position as a dancer at, in the School for Classical and Contemporary Dance at Texas Christian University, which was the first BFA program in classical dance in the country. And Adam being trained as a classical dancer and ballet dancer, um, having worked with some modern companies like Alvin Ailey, American Dance Theater, and Lines Ballet, it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. Congratulations, Adam. Congratulations. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm so proud of my honey. I'm podcasting in from Fort Worth, which is located on the unceded homelands of multiple Native American nations, including Cherokee, Muscogee, Seminole, Kickapoo, Shawnee, Caddo, and Wichita all of whom were forcibly removed from their homes by settler colonialism and from which non-Native peoples now benefit. And it's very interesting that we find ourselves at a crossroads of all these different nations. These aren't actually the ancestral homes of those nations, but they were. Um, this was a transitory route where people uh, lived mm-hmm. in transit. And that crossroads metaphor or not even a metaphor, that that crossroads motif will, I think, um, come back up during during a lot of our conversation today because our work has been about, in some ways, repairing the damage that was done when that crossroads was destroyed by settler colonialism. Mm. I think it's, you know, there's a, we are going to talk more about this today because I think one of the themes that's really interesting in your career before we get to talking about DNA works is uh, geography and geolocation. Um, how do you come to the conversation of place with, uh, as it relates to the art you make? That's such a beautiful question and actually uh, opens the door for me to share um, just just a life experience that I feel very uh, privileged and honored to have. So my, all of my grandparents were immigrants. I think one grandfather was conceived in Europe and born, uh, born in the United States, but they were all essentially refugees coming from many different countries. And I grew up in a household where there were no less than four or five languages being spoken uh, many of them so that the children wouldn't understand, but some of them because we actually had relationships with other national communities that we're, we're not part of through, uh, through my father's work. And I remember a few years back at a Theater Without Borders event in D.C., I was on a panel and each panelist was being asked how they came to international work. And... When it got to me, I didn't really know how to answer the question because it's not something I ever came to. I, I, I grew up with an appreciation for this, the United States not really being where we came from and being a second or a third or a fourth home, depending on the migration patterns. And half of my family still living in the Middle East. And... Uh, having spent all of my childhood corresponding with them and some of my childhood visiting with them, childhood and young adulthood and adulthood. And so I don't have a sense of singularity of place, but really this notion of international versus national has never really occurred to me because also a lot of my experience in the U.S., um, because of the multiple identities that I have has been one of refinding my tribes, but also at the same time, one of outsiderness and not really having a strong sense as a young person that this was where I belonged or we belonged. And one of the remarkable things about having had the opportunity to travel so much and having a facility with languages 
is that uh, in, in, in many places around the world that I've gone and even places that I have no known connection to, I feel like I've been embraced as belonging to those places and have been um, made to feel very much at home and, um, and safe. And sometimes in ways that I've never felt safe here. Really, mm. really. I think it's such an interesting reframing of the idea of, you know, international versus national versus local as one of being inside or outside or belonging or um, yet to belong spaces. And it uh, maybe I'll use that as a as a way to talk a little bit about your company uh, with Adam, uh, DNA Works, because, you know, to me, it feels like this structure that um, is in place in in Fort Worth is is in many ways um, deeply connected to the local community there, but it is also such a transformative and powerful company across the world. Um, you know, and uh, you know, to continue with the compliments, I I also look to DNA Works a lot as as an example for the rest of the field because it feels like it is um, a company that is showing us how our values can be applied to our structures and our organizations in the in theater practice and and really to achieve incredible results um how did the company come about how did how did dna work start and and am i right in sort of seeing this in in a conversation with what you're talking about in terms of belonging and community and being inside Yes, I think you're absolutely right. When Adam and I met in 2004, uh, we're celebrating our 18th year together this December. Congratulations. Tenure and an anniversary. <laughs> we, uh, our, one of our very first conversations was about the fact that as two people who embody multiple heritages and backgrounds and identities, we were we rarely saw ourselves being accurately represented in the arts and we were often configured or asked to choose which one of our identity identities to foreground and recognize that there was a much more complex conversation about identity. I mean, not recognized experience lived that there was a much more complex conversation that needed to happen about identity, not just in the U.S. in general, but specifically in dance and theater. And so we immediately began thinking about what would it be like to create work from that perspective, from that sitting at the intersection of multiple identities and claiming all of them and not privileging one over the other and not checking boxes and not thinking in terms of half this or half that. And so DNA Works was definitely born out of both that frustration about the lack of accurate and enough representation, but also the excitement to do something about it and to start creating work specifically in that area that, that we felt was being under, underexplored at that moment. And so we did start creating that work and very quickly in 2006 decided to, to, to name our partnership and name the company and start bringing other people into that big tent that crossroads if you will and um and and really naming it as a as a as a genre or i mean i'm sure other people had before we had i'm not suggesting that we were the the first ones to do this but really but really i would i should say more naming that as our mission and um and and finding that by bringing attention to the notion of the complexity of identity that it didn't necessarily just have to be racialized identity or ethnic identity or gender identity or sexuality identity that that it could be that the conversation about that spectrum of identities could very easily um that that it drew lots of people from lots of different backgrounds who wanted to have that same that same idea or conversation really wanted to ideate around that. And so, you know, it's interesting. We, 
obviously get asked a lot in grant applications and in conversations or even among colleagues, like, you know, how do you get your rooms, your audiences to look the way they look? And we always gently push back at the notion of anyone getting anything when it comes to an audience, because that to us really um, dehumanizes the audience. But but the answer is simply we don't we don't get anyone to do anything. We are active in our multiple intersecting communities uh, and constituencies, and we are in dialogue and conversation and supporting the efforts of other organizations in these multiple intersecting communities and constituencies and identities. And so this is an ongoing conversation that we have with our communities. I want to talk about two pieces. Um um of yours one um was your partnership with christopher viewers on his solo work the real james bond was dominican um that started at dna works but is broadcast during the pandemic from jiva theater center in rochester which i know gabriel and i both got to see and we loved um and secondly i want to talk about the fort worth lynching tour honoring the memory of mr fred rouse which is an innov- interactive bike, car, and virtual tour to four sites associated with the racial terror, lynching of Mr. Rouse, uh, who is a black butcher who was lynched by a white mob in Fort Worth in 1921. And DNA Works has created an app that is used at each of those sites to understand and process the history of the murder of Mr. Rouse. And I wonder if you might share as a director how these works came to be and, and what they've meant to you and, and the audience that got to see them. Well, thanks for thanks for shouting out those two pieces. I'm very proud of both of them because really, um, in addition to the the art and performances involved with both of them, which is just exquisite on you know, on the part of the performers and the artists involved. Uh, I also am very proud of the community conversations that they stimulate. I think before talking about the pieces, I'll mention that one of the things that DNA Works does is that after every performance um, or program or iteration of something, we hold a community story circle. So instead of a question and answer with the artist or a talk back, we actually say that we're turning the lights down on the stage and up on the audience and ask audience members, lead audience members through a story circle process, which results in them sharing their own stories, whether it be family stories or personal stories of how what they just saw relates to their life or what they're taking away from it, that they they share those in a, in a, in a group setting with the audience. And we've had audiences up to 200, 300 people um, participate in these story circles over the years. They're... It's, it's interesting when we did the real James Bond was Dominican in, in Dallas and shout out to um, Bishop Arts Theater Center and Teresa Coleman Wash who, who presented it. There was an elder <laughs> from the Dallas community who came back a couple times and on one night she stood up and she said, I know y'all have seen me here a few times. I really love the show, but what I'm really coming back for is these story circles because <laughs> she said, I'm getting such an education about who is in my community and who and who I'm sitting next to and passing in the street and, and that I'm there's, I've not had any other opportunity at this scale to hear this multiplicity and plurality of, of community voices. And so um, we're, we're, we feel very strongly about that while we, we like beautiful things and we like beautiful artwork that we're really clear that we are creating this artwork to touch people's hearts and minds in a particular way that they feel a little more open and a little more free to share um, themselves with their neighbors in these community story circles. And venues are, are, are often surprised, but the story circles will sometimes go on even longer than the piece because, um, because people find it such a rich experience. So mm-hmm. that's just a little bit about something that unites those two pieces. The real James Bond was Dominican. Uh, came out of DNA Works creating its international ensemble in January of 2017, where we felt that uh, we individually, Adam and me, and also a lot of the people in our uh, artistic community around not just the country, but the world needed something positive to focus our attentions to because of the inauguration that happened that month. And, um, 
and we invited at that time, I think it was 13 other people that we had worked closely with over the years. We wanted actually to just introduce them to each other and to one another and to draw a circle around us as, as a cohort, as an ensemble that would support uh, one another through that very um, challenging time. And that has then grown now. The ensemble has, has 20 people in it and represents, I think, four countries and eight or nine nationalities. And it's, um, it's, it's really where we go to first when we begin working on a project to see who we can draw in from that core group of artists. Chris is, uh, Chris, Christopher Rivas, uh, we met doing, a, I met doing a hip hop theater workshop at Cal Arts um, some 10 or more years ago. And there was an immediate connection, talk about finding one's tribe. I think we looked at each other and recognized each other and said, okay, this is a relationship that's gonna continue. And we stayed in touch and brought him in as an assistant on work that we were doing um, in Hungary with uh, Roma and non-Roma youth. And um, he assisted us and then eventually led workshops, um, continued on that work. It was a three-year project that we did with uh, organization in, in, in Hungary. And he, he, he joined the ensemble and in our first ensemble call said, I have this idea for a show that I'm working on. Uh, how does one get a show produced? <laughs> and I said, well, you bring it to us and we decide we're gonna produce it. And so that's how it began. And he started sending me hundreds of pages of writing, which we began working through together. And over a period of two or so years, we whittled that down into a script and then brought in designers, uh, wonderful um, projection designers, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Kate Freer and um, Kelly Colburn. And we um, workshopped it at uh, High Arts and here, and then began touring it. And so that's a little bit of how that piece uh, came to be. Fort Worth lynching tour honoring the memory of Mr. Fred Rouse came to be because, and it's really interesting that we had already planned to premiere it prior to the pandemic. So we didn't realize it at the time, but we were creating a uh, socially distant um, work of uh, site-specific, uh, I don't even want to call it performance. I think we call it memorial activism that Adam in doing research on lynchings in on racial terror lynchings in Fort Worth and in Texas discovered this story of Mr. Fred Rouse, who was lynched in 1921 and for whom there had been no official recognition by the city um, literally until uh, the centenary this past December, 2021, when finally there was uh, a plaque installed in this Saturday, another plaque is being installed at another location. And we chose mm -hmm. five locations that were central to this narrative of how he was attacked, leaving work at the stockyards for um, Swift and Company um, butchers and, uh, and how that led to him being taken to the city and county hospital where he was kidnapped out of the Negro ward and then taken to the ultimate site of the lynching and, and, and shot and hanged. And because so few people in Fort Worth knew about this, Adam had the idea that we turn this into a tour also because it meant taking the very streets back where this white mob kidnapped him, a large white mob of, I believe over 30 people kidnapped him out of the hospital and where mm -hmm. hundreds of cars paraded uh, in front of that the site where that tree was located um, uh, immediately after he was murdered. And that there's something about being physical. Uh, the original idea was to have a bike tour and then we expanded it to having a car and bus tour for um, to be able to accommodate more people in terms of um, accessibility and mobility. Um, but the whole idea was being was was understanding that part of processing trauma is actually being physical, is using the body, is is 
is working it out of the neurotransmitters. And so the idea was that not only are we taking the streets back and literally occupying those streets as a as a as a bike tour of twenty or thirty people, you know, bike down the streets and traffic gets stopped in order to reclaim uh, Mr. Rouse's memory and his name and educate people about this this murder. Um, but also, people are 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 being physical while they are experiencing these 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 it's actually four sites that we we go to because of distance the fifth site is the cemetery where he's buried and um and we also understood that part of processing is part of we wanted we were very cautious in the construction of this tour not to re-traumatize the audience or at least to mitigate as much harm as possible so we do things like having a black mental health specialist uh, as part of the tour, who leads us in exercises throughout the tour to make sure that we are all breathing and taking moments of reflection and paying attention to our experiences and our and our bodies and our minds and our souls as we're receiving this information. We also don't repeat the order of the events. We actually reverse them, both to unfurl and unravel history, but also not to re-perform this lynching every time by by doing it in order. And um, in, in our mind, there's an element of, of, of freeing his soul uh, from, from this, this horrific event by unwinding it each time. Um, that may be conceptual, but it is something that's in our hearts and minds as we do the tour, is not to reproduce it every time. Um, but we also created an augmented reality app, as you mentioned, uh, because we wanted to include artists' responses to these sites to model how um, how artists deal with trauma. And so we have movement, dance, poetry, music, song, um, visual arts. Uh, in each of the sites, you see how a different artist or a group of artists has responded and created something to to process the uh, enormity of this this event. Um, and then there's also some additional historical information that's um, included in the app. And there's augmented reality content where, I'm sorry, there's, uh, yeah, aug augmented reality content where participants have an opportunity to interact with the app and, and almost make a different choice, free, free him at the hospital swipe away the gun at the site of the lynching in the tree. Um, and, and while it may, again, may sound conceptual and, um, and, and to be quite honest, at first, not being a gamer, I didn't really understand how, uh, how, how this would lead to being an upstander. Um, the interesting thing is, is that because of the design and um, because of the cumulative impact of the tour, it is one of the things that we get the most positive feedback about was that there was actually an opportunity to do something inside of the tour. There was an opportunity to, to have agency and take action. And even if only symbolically um, to, um, to make a different choice. Uh, and, um, and the tour has been extremely well received. We do hold at the end of the tour, a community story circle in front of, um, or in the in the in the vista of, depending on whether you're on the car or the the bike tour, um, ten twelve North Main Street, which is the former Ku Klux Klan auditorium that was built in 1924 um, in Fort Worth. Um, again, the Klan having the largest um, at the time in the early 20s, having the largest membership here in Fort Worth, and Fort Worth being the headquarters for the Texas Klan. Um, in that building. Mm. And so literally in the shadow of that building or in front of the building, we set up chairs and we sit and we have a conversation about racial justice, about memorial justice, about equity. Uh, we ask community members to tell their stories and their connection to this material and to this history. We obviously get stories from uh, both sides of the history um, as uh, oppressor and oppressed or um, 
families of perpetrator and families of being terrorized. And the, the really beautiful thing about this tour is that we start off actually in the stockyards, in the parking lot of the building that was the, at the time, the administrative offices for Swift and Company. And we start off in this big circle. And you can see that there are groups of people coming together who don't, you know, maybe always frequently, if ever, come together in Fort Worth. And slowly, gradually, by the end of the tour, people, the, 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 the coolness starts to warm up and people are connecting and talking and sharing and crying and hugging. And there's this, over the course of two to three hours, you just see this visual shift in the city. And it's been um, just astonishing how much support this very radical project has had and how many people, I mean, we, we can't stop giving the tour because every week we get more requests um, for a company that wants to take their employees on it or a nonprofit that wants to take their members on it or a church or a synagogue. And um, it's just really important to us to keep this going because we're experiencing a level of vulnerability and transparency in the audience that um, is, is so moving and powerful. Well, and, you know, earlier you, um, you discussed this piece uh, and, and as, as that parts of it were conceptual. And I, I think I might want to just suggest to you that I think it is thoughtful. Um, and it's something I notice about a lot of your work, not only as a director and artist, but as an educator, as a leader in the field there, you, you always are taking an extra moment to make sure that, uh, the work feels full, but also cared for, um, that the relationship with the audience is, um, robust, but also there is agency and there's care and there's thought in it. Um, you know, the, the fact that you are uh, going to continue the memory of Fred Rouse with this new building at 1012 North Main Street um, and that it's going to be a center for, for art and community healing. It's, it's just a really thoughtful approach to the way uh, we as artists and we in the theater can bring ourselves to these questions. So um, thank you so much for this work. Thank you for for doing this piece. As you know, this is a piece I followed with great interest, and and uh, and that I really really feel strongly about. And um, for I also just before I turn it over to Nyland, I I want to say to our listeners, if you are interested in DNA Works, we will provide their website. But if you are interested in this project at 1012 North Main and the building, there is a website for that too. And that is www.transform1012.org. Um, so I just want to offer that is that I think there's just a level, I don't know that I think it's conceptually, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't find that dismissive. I find it really wholesomely um, caring mm. um, in, in some way. Thank you, Gabriel. You know, it's hard for me to talk about these projects because they're so deeply embodied for me. Um, yes. Talk, yes, of course. Talking, talking feels, you know, I think it's, I, I guess maybe one of the reasons that I laugh and giggle every time you, you use the PhD at the beginning is that while that was a tremendous experience and especially some of the people like, um, Professor Ngugi Wathiongo, who wrote Decolonizing the Mind, who I had an opportunity to study with for two years, you know, changed my life. I also, it was frustrating for me to be sitting in a classroom. It was frustrating for me mm. to only be interacting with the world through books and writing. And and I love writing and it's writing's important. I'm not in any way dismissing the importance of reading theory and history and writing. but I also recognize the the limitation of only talking about work um, or only talking about ideas or only talking about social change. And so because of my, because, you know, you, you talked earlier about my work as a, as a movement director, I've always been 
I've always experienced the work in a much more somatic way, I think, than, than, than solely intellectual way. And, um, and not saying that those two are separate, but I just, it, it just makes me uncomfortable to talk about it. It, it doesn't make me uncomfortable to do it and to, to be with people and to be in a story circle and to, and to hold space for other people to talk about what they're experiencing, but to describe the work. I, that's, I think that's why you, 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 you rightly noted that I had this sort of apologetic tone about certain things or like feeling like I needed to explain them or, you know, rationalize them. It's because without doing it, it's just words. Yes. And, um, and, and that just makes me, um, I, I guess at this point in my life, that makes me uncomfortable. The, just the words without the body make me uncomfortable. I understand that. And I, and I respect that, but I, you know, knowing that a lot of directors listen to this podcast, especially a lot of early career and emerging directors, I find something really instructive in mm-hmm. the way that you come to the creation of your work and and just want to lift that up is that I don't know that it is conceptual in any way um, that doesn't feel full, that doesn't feel um, rich and and well considered. Um, it, it you know, um, I think all I think all great artists have trouble talking about their work. You know, I I think that's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, but I do want to just sort of lift up for for those of you who are listening the the care and intentionality that you brought to the creation of this piece and will continue to bring to it um so thank you thank you yeah thank you for that reflection and lifting the audience experience uh there's i think there's a a a a culture for other reasons of the eye right now of how we are getting identity and representation in but you're you what i was also loving you talking about was how the care for the audience experience that you were ushering mm-hmm. um, and, and, and really taking the time to describe that. And, it, and I guess that goes into, I guess my next question about you, Fran, when I look at you though, I like, I see your body at work. I, I, the talks we've had and, and I just think you've always been on this forefront of the conversation on the ground. And especially looking at equality and, and social justice work, non-traditional casting practices, community engagement, audience experiences, social justice and community building. I can I can go on and on, but I, I think I, I just wonder maybe this is me just, you know, peeking in your brain. I wonder if you have thoughts on what you think, if you could, a microphone to the field or to these directors out there. What is something that you want to draw attention to? What do you think is like next up that maybe we should put some extra care behind Mm. that's such a thoughtful question um i think i just want to start by saying that all of this has come about because someone said you can't Mm. um I was words. <laughs> so set on becoming an actor and studied acting and acted my way through college and did summer stock and just as much experience as I could get. And in my junior year of college, and some people might have heard me say this before, but it bears repeating, I was told by a professional at my university um, at the theater at my un- the Lord Theater at my university, that I would never make it as an actor commercially because I was too ethnic looking. Okay. And this person carried a lot of power. He was he was Ew. he was somebody who, um, as students, we turned to because he was a professional in the field, right? Um, and in that moment, it was it was almost like. I was given a new set of goggles, like, I don't know, you know, virtual reality goggles or something. And I looked at the super talented people around me and saw how underused they were Um, in the same way that I felt like he was promising me a life of being underused and began ideating, like, what if these three women were the three sisters because I see them as 
those three women, but no one else does because they're looking at their skin color or their size or their hair texture and saying, well, they don't belong to the same family. And coming from a family where we have a wide variety of all of those things, that didn't even occur to me. I was just like, I want to see these three people on stage together and then created a version of the three sisters with them on stage. And then, you know, this John Guare play where I, I cast a family again, like the family that, you know, elements of the family that I'm from, but also elements of other families or branches of my family. And, um, and it was hugely satisfying to me. And I was like, wow, I'm putting underused actors to work and telling great stories and pissing some people off in the process. What could be better? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, people had things to say about it. And I was just like, okay, if you don't think this looks like a family, come over to my house, you know, or whatever. I mean, it, 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 so, so I think that, that, that since you mentioned uh, young directors and, 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 and what's next, I think what's next is always been what's true in the arts is the minute someone tells you no, you're onto something. Hmm. Because you're seeing something that they haven't seen yet. And that they may be, well, I mean... I shouldn't say whenever someone, I, you know, I can imagine certain situations where you, we might want to say no to somebody, but, um, but I would say, you know, do some self, <laughs> do some self scanning, some self evaluation, and then, you know, make sure that what you're doing is actually safe <laughs> on a physical level and, um, and on a spiritual level and that ask yourself, is this because of someone else's discomfort that they're saying no? Is this because of someone else's lack of imagination that they're saying no? Um, and what is there What is there to learn from the no? And what is there to reject about the no? And um, certainly I've had lots of moments where people have corrected me in mid-course that I've been extremely grateful for, where I've had a blind spot and someone has said, well, what about this? It's usually not usually when you when it's a blind spot somebody doesn't say no somebody says have you considered this um or mm-hmm. you should consider this but but i do think that um to go back to your original question the field is changing at such a rapid pace um i'm currently reading a whole slew of grant applications and i'm astonished at the huge range of uses of technology and uses of audience engagement um, that people are are applying for grants with. And I don't know that I have a predictor for what's next. I, I, I'm going to be very curious to see what happens. Um, I'm going to be very curious to see what happens. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to poison the well by, by saying too much more, but I, I do think that I do, I do know that I am moved by the many ways that theater and performance artists, um, performing arts artists are now wanting to dedicate their, their work to service. Um, with the faith that the sales will come if the service is there and with the faith that the, um, the audience relationships and the community relationships will be stronger if they don't begin with trying to sell a ticket, but begin with opening a dialogue and um, sitting in circle with folks and focusing on mutuality and even co-creation. Um, we, yeah. we're, we're working on this piece, The Secret Sharer, where we are weaving audience story circles into the actual piece so that as the piece goes on, every night it's slightly different because you'll hear different stories from the audience. And a few years ago when we first proposed it in a grant application, 
a lot of the pushback was, how are you going to do that? That sound, that doesn't sound possible. How are people going to, you know, was, there was a, a lot of no's. And we beta tested it and did it in a particular way by going into communities first, doing story circles with them just as communities doing story circles and then having members of those same story circles come into the performance and begin really they've already had the experience of standing up and telling their story. And then as soon as one person did, then the whole audience did and they didn't have to have been in a story circle yet. And there was about, I don't know of these grant applications, there were at least four or five that talked about incorporating story circles into the performance and not that they knew about the secret share because we're still developing it. No one's really heard about it yet. Um, But, but, but just this zeitgeist moment of, of of understanding that the there doesn't have to be a dividing line between and of course it's not new but it feels like everything old is new again that the that the audience can be participatory in a particular way and that their stories can um can be crocheted and woven into the fabric of um of a performance as it's happening and the power and the power of that Yes, absolutely they can. And I, you know, I'm i also, I would like to come back to the idea that everything has happened because of a no that you received. And um, Nyland, I, I know you and I have talked about this offline, how many directors we've interviewed for this podcast who have had that experience. We, we, we just talked with Timothy Douglas and I think of Liesl Tommy and Shakina Nafak and David Mendezabal. Mm-hmm. This is a theme, Daniel, in some of the great directors of our time is, is the, the, the a pivoting around a no and the changes it brought to their work as artists. So thank you for sharing that. And you were, you were part of an August group who were told no. Um, <laughs> And came to this. Uh, I know that we are uh, close to coming to the end of our time. Um, so we have sort of two fun questions that we would love to bring to you uh, that we're bringing to everyone on this podcast. Um, so I'm going to start with the first one. And it is a question about uh, you in the future. You, you have worked with so many extraordinary people. I wonder if there's uh, any artist, um, you know, out there in the world who uh, you would love to collaborate with one day? Is there anyone on your bucket list uh, that you dream of? Who do you admire in the field that you would love to uh, have a moment with? Wow. That, that you haven't already, obviously. I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> well maybe maybe just a few uh, who who comes to mind immediately well the first person that came to mind and i've had this um i've had this idea for a while and i just sort of waited for the the right moment and haven't quite found it yet but uh there is a, a nigerian singer who's based in salt lake city named Alex Boyer. And a few years ago, I was asked to direct a production of um, um, of Fela. And I thought mm-hmm. I was going to ask him to, to do it, and then the production fell through. So that, that didn't happen. Um, but he's remarkable and has such... Um, His, re- he's, his remixing of pop songs in a sort of Afrofuturistic um, uh, mo- mode, I'm just so drawn to what he does. And so, yeah, someday, 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 I'm, I, I have somebody in, 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 in the Mormon community in Salt Lake City, which he's actually part of, uh, poised, who's like one degree of separation from him. So one of these days, <laughs> he's going to get a call from me once we once I figure out what the what the right project is. Um, and I've I've even just thought about connecting with him before the right project, just to say, hey, I'm a big fan, and um, you know, who knows, start start a conversation. Um, I also really hope. Uh, there's there's an amazing visual artist at UT Austin named Bailey Du, and I I hope that one day we'll do something together because I'm I'm completely 
uh, mesmerized by her work as well. So I've got a long list, but those are the first two people that I guess there's an A and there's a B. So there, there we go. They're the beginning of the list alphabetically. <laughs> um, I'm sure by the time of the end of this conversation, I'll have thought of like five other people. Um, yeah. So that's that answer. That works. That works. We're just, we're going to throw that out into the universe and mm-hmm. hopefully that manifests sooner than later. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for our final question, I, I would love for us to end on uh, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, I got asked that question last year for something and it was really fun to answer um, and kind of healing in a way. Um. Listen more. Not feeling like I had to prove something all the time, but actually understanding the power of listening to move. um, To move the world. And... um, It, I, I would give this this advice to my current self as well as my younger self. Rejoice in the fallow periods, so that mm. I have, <laughs> so that I have energy and um, um, clarity and focus in the in the harvest periods. Um, mm. That I always still get so nervous when there's nothing on the table or nobody's calling me and asking me to work for them. And and that's the other thing is that I don't know why I've internalized that I need someone to call me and ask me to work for them. Even after all these years of, of doing my own work, uh, <laughs> but still it's colonized somehow etched deeply into my brain. And if I could just, find the remedy, find the antidote to that. Um, but certainly that, um, that, uh, I would tell my younger self to just relax and enjoy those times as much as I enjoy the, the, the high, um, velocity times. Great advice. Creative. I actually wrote down rejoice in the fallow times. Uh, it's great. Well, Dr. Daniel Banks, PhD. Um, <laughs> I, I really want to thank you for taking this time with us. Uh, it was great to talk to you as always. Thank you for everything. Thank you guys. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Talking Direction. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. You can follow us on all social media platforms with the handle at Dramaly. Talking Direction is a program of the Drama League of New York, America's only nonprofit home for directors and the audiences they inspire, offering essential services and resources to artists in their time of need. Please join us in this effort by visiting dramaleague.org and click donate. Or better yet, be a part by becoming a member. Thanks for listening. 